Hello, this is Andrew Brewer. I'm the host of the Healthcare Insights in Northwest North Carolina podcast brought to you by Northwest Area Health Education Center at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Today, my guest is Melissa Witt Glover, who is the Executive Director of the Council on Black Health. I am thrilled to have her join us today, and I want to start out by saying, you know, start with a 30,000-foot view, how how you got to be Executive Director, and tell me about the Council on Black Health. Sure. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm excited to talk about the Council always. So uh, let's see, where do I start? So the Council on Black Health actually started in 2002 uh, when I was a postdoc at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. And back then it was uh, ACORN, the African-American Collaborative Obesity Research Network. So ACORN with two A's. And it was started by Dr. Shariki Kumanyika, who was my postdoctoral mentor. And at the time she was mentoring a number of uh, black scholars. I think we were all black women scholars um, who were focusing on obesity and doing obesity research. And I think independently across the nation, we had reached out to her to ask for mentoring about how to do research in Black communities, how to make a difference, but also mentoring and how to survive this thing called academia, where many of us were uh, one of the only people in our department. And so Shariki uh, gathered us together um, virtually to be able to mentor us um, one, to help us through academia, but two, to start to develop a think tank around how to improve health in Black communities and how to think outside the box, because Shariki had been working on this for a long time. Things weren't really changing. We knew we needed to do something different with health. And so that's how we started. And we've been in existence since 2002. Uh, in 2018, we changed our name to the Council on Black Health, uh, and we moved from focusing uh, primarily on obesity to focusing on obesity related health behaviors, and then social determinants of health. Uh, and then we also uh, turned our attention more towards action. And so we are a research and action network uh, that has expanded from 11 charter members to uh, several hundred people who are interested in improving, in improving health in Black communities. Uh, and our, our mission is to develop and promote solutions that achieve healthy Black communities. So uh, that's a a 30,000-foot view of how we got here, but we've been around since 2002 and uh, looking forward to, to being here for, for a long time to come. Well, thank you for that. And uh, so you, you went from obesity focus to broadening that to obesity-related behaviors. Can you Let's define some things around those terms. So what all uh, is, does that encompass, obesity-related behaviors? So when we started out, we were focusing primarily on obesity, and then Shariki's background was in nutrition. And so a number of people who reached out to her uh, were doing work around nutrition. And then my background and training is in physical activity. Uh, so a number of us were doing work in that area. And we were mostly at the beginning focused on interventions to improve nutrition and physical activity as a way to address obesity in Black communities. Uh, and then, you know, obesity is also linked with diabetes. It's linked with heart disease. And so there were some uh, some focus on some of the um, health outcomes that are associated with obesity. But our primary focus at the very beginning was obesity um, and then physical activity and nutrition to 
to make sure that we covered everyone. But then that started morphing. And when we were when we were talking about our work, uh, the charter members, that started morphing because, for example, when 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 I would do work around physical activity and interventions, uh, specifically for black women, we knew that one particular thing that was important at the time was thinking about the impact of physical activity and, and barriers and, and, and hair was a particular issue at that point. And so we would always, uh, the group of us who are focusing on uh, on physical activity interventions, for example, would always talk about how that was an aspect that needed to be incorporated into our interventions. But outside of folks who had lived experience uh, as Black women, th that seemed like a, a weird concept. Why would you be talking about hair? Why is that such a big deal with physical activity? And so Part of what we uh, were, were aiming for within ACORN at the beginning from out of the box was thinking about how you can incorporate cultural aspects, history, uh, environment, things that actually uh, might impact obesity, nutrition, or physical activity. And so when I say all those related behaviors, it's sort of this big universe of things that surrounds the one thing that we're focusing on might be obesity, but there's so many different things that drive how someone, uh, you, you know, what what someone's weight is, or what their behaviors around weight it are, what their outcomes related to obesity are. So we're we're trying to tackle all of that. What kinds of uh, research and and policy recommendations and stuff do you have in, in the works, or your successes around around the topic of fitness? Well, I'll just say we we've, we've been doing some um, interesting intervention work. Uh, uh, across our network around how do you increase physical activity? How do you improve health behaviors and population subgroups? And I'll just use one for uh, as an example. We uh, have done some work with uh, Project Brotherhood out of Chicago uh, with Marcus Murray uh, and then um, Dr. Steve Hooker, uh, who is now at uh, San Diego State University. We did um, a study called uh, Active and Healthy Brotherhood, which looked at improving uh, nutrition, physical activity, in black men, um, but also improving accessing the uh, healthcare system. And so it was an intervention. Um, and part of it was, I'll just talk about the physical activity part first. Uh, part of it was focusing on um, just making sure people knew what they needed to do in terms of the recommendations for physical activity. And then thinking through again, every time we do this work, we think through, so this is what you should do you know, here's a demonstration of what it feels like, what moderate intensity physical activity feels like. If there are different types of activity that we might want people to try out, we we do that in a safe space like yoga, for example, is one of those things that you want to try out in a safe space before you get into a yoga studio where everyone's, you know, folding themselves into pretzels and you can barely touch your toes. Um, but so we have those discussions, we try out different activities, and then we talk about what's getting in the way. And so Specifically, when we talked in that program with Black men about what was getting in the way of physical activity, and again, this is where our deeper work around structural racism and social determinants of health come into play, uh, men talked about, um, and this stems also from Dr. Rayshawn Ray's work, men talked about not feeling safe going out and exercising or, or at going out and exercising and having to really make sure that, that they were aware of where they were and that it was a safe place or making sure that they looked or appeared non-threatening uh, when they were out exercising. And that could be anything from wearing a college t-shirt to you know, trying to give an appearance of, 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 feeling, uh, of, of being safe. And so when you think about things like 
physical activity and we know we want to promote physical activity and we know we want people to do it, uh, we have to recognize that it's not just putting sidewalks in communities or crosswalks that is uh, the, the safety related issue for people. It is uh, the, the over policing of black and brown bodies, uh, both by uh, law officials and by citizens who deputize themselves. And so some of the work that we're doing is around individual behavior change, but some of the work that we're doing is, you know, following alongside Dr. Charles Brown, whose work in arrest and mobility is looking at how do you how do you work on decriminalizing black mobility so that everyone can feel free to exercise and to move around in every space. And so that's the kind of work that the council is really focusing on. Again, it's that deeper structural racism. What is it that gets in the way of people being able to engage in activity? Several years ago, Dr. Uh, Tara Goddard, it's been a couple of years, but she did an interesting study where she put people um, on street corners and she had people that were dressed exactly alike, um, same stature, um, same gender, and the only same clothing. And the only difference was race. And what she found is that drivers were more likely to stop, yield, to give right away if the pedestrian was white and less likely to do that if the pedestrian was black. And so again, these are structural racism. These are the kinds of things that we have to address if we want to be able to, uh, to, to, to come up with solutions that achieve health in black communities. And that's just an example as it relates to fitness. And so when you think about you know, that and that particular study, Yes, we were able to get people to increase physical activity. We talked about, you know, where where might be safe spaces, what 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 kinds of things might people do together. But we know that we also have to start addressing legislation that uh, to to make sure that 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 everyone is safe and feels safe, and that there are laws in place to protect all citizens when they're out um, out and about protecting their own health. What what would that look like? Well, we've got a we've got a policy team that's helping us to put together our agenda related to that. Um, but it looks like I mean, so if you think about um, if you think about the case of George Floyd, where uh, we had to I mean, it was a clear, clear cut case of police over overreaching and overreacting in a situation. So we need um, to be able to make sure that uh, all people of color, uh, people people um, in the United States are protected. Charles Brown is someone that we would be following to be able to um, lead and guide uh, our work in that area because he has a um, platform called Arrested Mobility uh, where he has done that work. And so he would be the person that we would take the lead on following for that. What can you tell me about your Bill of Rights? Let's go into that. Sure. So the, the Black Health Bill of Rights was released in uh, April of 2021, uh, and it was born out of our last, in 2019, we had our uh, in-person convening for the Council on Black Health. Um, and we had a, a, a colleague there, Tambra Stevenson, as we were, as we were thinking about um, the work that we were doing in the council, uh, Tambra suggested that one of the things that we might do is develop a Black Health Bill of Rights similar to uh, other, uh, you know, patients' bills of rights and things like that. And so we had about 150 people who were in attendance, and collectively uh, we generated some of the thoughts of the initial version of the Black Health Bill of Rights, uh, and we finished that up internally 
uh, and released in April of 2021. Um, and the council is using that uh, as a reference point for uh, driving our work and enabling conversations uh, um, about improving health in Black communities. And we want collectively uh, our network to em embrace this. So it's a collective of Black voices uh, who are focused on health equity and Black Americans to be able to use this as our framework. Um, and when we say health equity uh, um, and the Black Health Bill of Rights, we're talking about that from in terms of justice from all aspects of health. And so there are, within the Black Health Bill of Rights, there are seven specific articles that we focus on uh, that talk about our rights to various aspects um, of fundamental rights to health. So conditions in society at large or conditions within healthcare systems. And the, the idea is that everyone has these rights. The Black Health Bill of Rights is something that we have put together to affirm those rights for the Black community because our rights are so often overlooked or disrespected. So you mentioned equity in the framework of health, and I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. Making sure that health, health care, uh, opportunities to improve health, opportunities for to participate in health-related behaviors are applied fairly and not necessarily equally, but in ways that every person uh, can access. And so that might look different for different people, because if you have a lot of resources um, already, then your ability to achieve health uh, could be easier. If you don't have a lot of resources, then you may require some additional supports to make sure that you have access. And so equity is uh, giving people the um, resources um, to get what they need to be able to get to the um, outcome, which is optimal health for all. Article four, we have the right to approach solutions to black health from a strength-based approach that incorporates a decolonized and intersectional lens to health equity. Can you elaborate on the decolonized and intersectional lens? Sure. So I'm going to I'm going to paraphrase something that's in, in writing related to this, because Dr. Kuminuka framed it beautifully um, when we when we wrote this up. So she says um, colonization typically refers to people who are subjugated to the control of outsiders who abuse their human rights and other rights. So from a race, ethnic, ethnicity perspective, this most often refers to indigenous populations. And in Africa, it refers to black people who were colonized by Europeans looking to expand their spheres of influence and wealth, claiming land, power, and sovereignty. So when we think about colonization, it's people who were taken over by some other, other group. And so in order for something to be colonized, some of the tools that were typically used were oppressive laws, exploiting people, cultural domination, and control of resources. And some of those resources includes access to health. And so when we think about the, um, the concept of colonization uh, as it relates to the history of Black people in America, many of the same motives, uh, so oppressive laws, exploitation, cultural domination, control of resources, resources, many of those same motives and, and processes were also used. And so even though, uh, even, and even with emancipation, the effects of slavery uh, have not ended in, uh, in the long-term effects of, of slavery in Black communities. And so uh, when you think about intersectional, the effects, of, uh, the effects are intersectional in their differential impacts on gender and age groups in Black communities. And so 
when we talk about decolonized approaches for Black Americans, decolonized approaches means pushing against or countering these long-standing effects. So those effects from when we had oppressive laws, when we had exploitation, when we had cultural domination, when we had control of resources, we had these uh, we we had these effects, and so that was biased assumptions, stereotypes, misperceptions that devalue Black health and Black lives, um, and and those kinds of things then impact and limit access to education, to wealth, to other resources. And just as an example of bias, so we know that um, in terms of exploitation, we know that many of the um, of the procedures that we use now in the medical field were tested and Black people and on slaves, often without um, use of any kind of anesthesia or anything like that. So we're tested. And so there there are people who still teach to this day that, that, that Black people don't feel as much pain and we don't require pain medication. Um, and those kinds of things then impact the treatment that we get when we walk into healthcare. There is still the notion that Black people enjoy a larger body size, or we are more satisfied with with heavier body uh, body sizes, and so we are often underdiagnosed or undertreated if we are overweight or obese when we walk in the healthcare systems. That is a direct link to or a direct result of of of, of previous notions about Black people that have continued to be passed down and passed down, and continues to impact how we are um, how we are treated today. That looks that looks like you know when uh, previous uh, biases and stereotypes deemed all black people, you know, dangerous or or a threat. And so, uh, how that plays out is um, when you see someone who is black who is out for a jog running down the street, and you assume that person is a threat, and and you act accordingly. So it's that kind of thing that has been passed down for years that continues to impact healthcare, health behaviors, health outcomes in communities even today. Thank you for that. Do you do you feel like things are improving? Um, in some respects, yes, and in some respects, no. I I think that there are more conversations happening around equity, around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, I also think there are um, and there are more people who uh, are against diversity, equity, and inclusion who are more comfortable um, being outspoken about that. And so I think in some respects and for some population subgroups, things are improving and for others, maybe not. In some areas of the country, things are improving and in some areas of the country, maybe not. I think that um, there, there are, there, there's more of a push and a recognition that we need to address these longstanding um, stereotypes, these longstanding issues and I and I think more there are more people who are invested in making that happen. I think that it can happen faster than than we lead ourselves to believe. I think that change can happen faster than we lead ourselves to believe. And 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 so, I, but I think it's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be messy. And 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 we may not always get it right, but I think we have to keep pushing. And we need more and more people who are not afraid to get it wrong, but keep pushing. It seems like progress and better health in all communities uh, would be would be welcomed by all. What what what's uncomfortable and what's messy about that? I think uh, oftentimes I think that people look at things like pie. Like if you get a slice of pie, that's less pie for me. And so 
I, I think sometimes people, uh, people assume that equity means you have to give something up for somebody else to, 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 be, uh, to be healthy or to be successful. I also think that people are comfortable, people who have been, um, you know, in the, in, on top, so to speak, may be uncomfortable or feel like they're going to lose something if other people um, are also able to, to prosper and achieve. There is a political element to some of this, and I, I think that's where the root of my questions about equity come in, because, you know, the lessons of the 20th century, uh, where equity was the kind of the, the promise for all, if you subscribe to our ideology, everyone will be equal and everyone will share the same resources. And we saw how that ended up in the 20th century. So I think there's a there's a view of that word that gets a little uh, a little uncomfortable for some people. And again, you pointed out those who, you know, on top or those who have made it uh, are probably the ones that are most resistant to that. But they're also the ones probably in the most or in a position to just be wary of where that leads to in the extreme into this equity. And that's where people uh, kind of find uh, a little bit of room to push back on on what that actually means. I'll use an example. Um, w- when you have children who are learning to read, um, there are some children who pick it up naturally. There are other children who uh, maybe need a little bit more assistance. Maybe they are, are dyslexic and so they need uh, a, l- a little bit more assistance. Giving the child who needs a little bit more assistance the assistance that they need to learn how to read, that's that's equity. It doesn't mean that you are taking something from the child who did not need that help. And so that's equity. But but one of the arguments that I've heard is, I'll, I'll use sports, for example, um, they're saying that, you, you know, people assume equity means my child is naturally talented and 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 great at basketball and could be a starter but you're going to make my child sit down because somebody else's child wants to be on the team and they're not good. And that's not fair to my child. That's not what it means. Equity means, you know, we'll, we'll coach one, one person may not is never going to be Michael Jordan, but we could give them the tools to make them be the best basketball player that they can be. That doesn't mean that <laughs> your child's not going to be, it just means that everybody gets the tools to be the best that they can be. Uh, and and I think that's what we have to remember when we think about these, because often when people hear equity, they think it means you're going to hold me back so you can put someone else forward. And that's not that's not what we're talking about when we talk about equity. But that's what I think people hear. And I think that's what that fear is, is you're going to you're going to hold me back so that someone else can can move forward. Yeah, and, and I like to think of it in the investment sense too, because what you the the example you gave of of spending more investment in the child that needs more help is creating equity in an investment that's going to return dividends because that's going to be a smarter, uh, more productive uh, citizen in the long run if if those if those resources are invested in that child who who needed that little bit extra to 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 be lifted up so that was a great example i appreciate that um let's talk let's continue to talk about progress um you know looking at health metrics and i haven't looked at this in a while but i remember um looking at um 
not disparities between cultures or ethnicities or skin colors or race or anything like that, but let's look at the black population um, itself. Um, and I know there's been progress. The one thing that I would say about improvements and thinking about uh, disparities and closing gaps is when we think about optimal health across the board in the United States, I don't think any population subgroups are really achieving optimal health. And so even when we talk about closing gaps, we have to be careful because we could be closing gaps and just having a, a continuing to have a nation of people who are not achieving optimal health. And so I think the improvements that we make should be improvements that impact all of us across the board. And so I think that's important. I also yeah. think it's important that we look at um you know, we, we look at things so we can look at individual health conditions and say, well, we're we're improving in this particular area. So fewer people are dying from this particular thing. But what we we want to make sure of is that we're not seeing an uptick somewhere else. So maybe there maybe we have fewer people dying of heart disease, but there's more people dying of cancer. So if, if that's the case, are we really you know, are we really seeing improvements? And so. You know, I think we have to we we have to pay attention to those things as well. But really important, I think, is the the notion of optimal health means the meaning the the highest level of health that that anyone can attain, uh, regardless of you know what another population subgroup is doing. That's going to be the most important metric um, because we're all unfortunately in the United States we spend a lot of money on healthcare and we are uh, we we are not. Um, not healthy as a nation. You know, a lot of people are paying attention to that, especially after COVID and all that. It's just the, the resources are going in and the outcomes just aren't, don't match what the investment is. And you could argue, I think, that it's the lack of preventative care, treating people with disease at the late stage and spending a lot of resources on that. So I, I love reimagining well, in your in, in the Council on Black Health, reimagining Black Health, but I just love reimagining health as a nation, as a world, um, is something that we all should uh, be on board with and 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 supporting. And I think you know that goes into mental health, it goes into environmental, um, it goes into, of course, nutrition and fitness, and and th that is something that I think we need to pay more attention to in, in getting the return on investment that we put in the healthcare system instead of funding wars and and other things. Um, it'd be good if we if we put that money into healthier communities, whether black and brown or yellow or red or white, it doesn't matter. Just get everyone healthier, and I think I think all a lot of these other systemic or cultural disparities kind of go away if everyone's healthier and not looking at I think I think one of one of the problems that we have in our society is we look for blame outside of ourselves and and I and there's legitimate blame to be shared in in those areas underserved communities historically oppressed communities um, but I think as individuals we like to point fingers instead of like looking at what we could do to optimize our life. And I think the messaging, the commercials, the advertising, and all the social media, all the different uh, channels that are in our purview counter that. They're not, they don't exist to keep us healthy. <laughs> they exist to keep us consumers. And that's what I'm trying to fight, fight back against. And I think, you know, I think in, in, in whatever communities, I think that's what we need to pay attention to. Um, any thoughts on that? 
Uh, I, I mean, I think the way that we counter that is putting pressure on advertisers, putting pressure on the the people who are 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 messaging to to message healthier things. Because we can talk about you know we can talk about the fact that individuals have the opportunity to make their own choices, but we can't downplay the fact that people spend a lot of money marketing to make us think the way they want us to think, and so. Uh, there, there are, in, in many cases, in many instances, it's a lot easier to be unhealthy than it is to be healthy. Um, and it takes a lot of work to be able to be, uh, to be healthy and to rise above all these things that are forcing us or pushing us into unhealthy directions. And I'm sure there are people that are listening saying, you know, that, of course not, people, people can make their own choices. But, you know, nine times out of 10, those are, those are people who have who have resources who can make their own choices but you know there there are there are lots of messages that are that are pointing us in the direction of of unhealthy eating of you know of of sitting still instead of exercising of fearing one population subgroup uh compared to another of saying well this this group deserves to to be this way or to have these outcomes because they didn't work hard enough i mean there's so many messages that we're fed that make us decide how we're going to treat people, uh, what access people are going to have, and so we've got to uh, we've we've got to put pressure. Those of us who are are pushing for reimagining health in all communities, we've got to put pressure on the decision makers, whether it's policymakers, marketers. We've got to put pressure on people to say these are basic human rights. Everyone has the right to have optimal health. Everyone has the right. And so we have to make sure that everybody has that access. We cannot force people to make the right decisions, um, but just like we can advertise and, and nudge people <laughs> the wrong way, we can nudge people the right way. Um, we can't control what a person, you know, what decision a person makes, but we can at least make it make the healthier choices, the easier choices. And we can put pressure on those that uh, that have something to do with that. What does uh, Melissa do um, for fun? My so what do I do for fun? I love going to concerts, uh, and the more '90s, the better. <laughs> uh, so concerts and live shows are my thing. I do for fun. I've I'm already planning out my 2023 schedule, so uh, I'm hitting a couple of shows. So I, I do that, and I I like to read. Uh, and then I have a Jack Russell Terrier uh, who likes to explore. So I, I I walk him a lot. So those are my kind of fun activities. No, no shortage of energy in the Jack Russell, that's for sure. Um, so so favorite 90s uh, bands or, 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 or artists? Hands down, New Edition. Ooh, okay. uh, I will be seeing them. I saw them three times last year. I'm seeing them twice in 2023. So hands down. New Edition is my favorite group of all time. Michael Jackson and Prince are my favorite singers, but New Edition is my favorite group of all time. Oh, God, Prince. He's on my top three list for sure. Tell me what's the most uh, memorable or impactful book you've read in the last year. I've read so many books. What did I... What was a book that I really enjoyed? I just finished a couple of months ago, um, because I like autobiographies, and I read um, Will Smith's book, which is going to sound kind of odd, but I read Will Smith's book. It was after the Oscar slap. 
And what I appreciated about it is the insight that it gave me into him and just how childhood experiences, childhood traumas can impact you so far uh, in in the future and how it, it just really resonated with me in terms of just how careful we have to be with people. Uh, from the time they're born uh, all the way through their lives, because he, I, I'm in, in no way, shape, or form making excuses for um, anyone putting their hands on anyone. But him revealing himself in his childhood was really just, it just made me think a lot about people in my life that I know and, and people that we've, we've met in our studies and how you know, childhood traumas and ACEs and all those things really, really, really impact people. And just how you never know what battles people are fighting when you encounter them. You never know what things that happen to them that are shaping how they are engaging with you and just how much that impacts all of us. One of the Will Smith's uh, quotes, I'm sure I've said it in a podcast before with two important things in life, reading and running. And what he said about reading was that's how you grow. That's how you learn. And the world becomes yours the more you read and running because gives you the opportunity to fight that voice in your head that says, oh, you can stop. You don't have to do this. This, You don't have to put in this work, but to overcome and 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 uh, silence that voice that that wants you to doubt yourself and wants you to quit. So, so reading and running is something that I've, I've shared quite a bit. So I appreciate that. And thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing your time today. And, and any questions for me before we sign off? What, well, what's your favorite band? Oh, gosh. Well, of all time has to be the Rolling Stones. Um, but like I said, Prince is up there. You know, Eric Clapton was asked one time, what's it like to be the, the, the world's greatest uh, guitarist and he said I don't know you'll have to ask Prince you know he what an artist that that guy I regret not seeing him live before he passed but um yeah he he's definitely up there for sure but I've been, I, 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 I've been listening to a lot of hip-hop the old school yeah I, I listen to hip-hop not in hip-hop nation I'm sorry my kids listen to hip-hop nation I listen to rock the bells 43 on Sirius yeah that's, that's my station so so LL Cool J um Rock the Bells, shout out. But this has been a fun conversation. I appreciate you coming on, and and I appreciate um, your time today, and, and you're a beautiful human, and I appreciate all the work that you're doing, and wish you the best. Thanks so much, Andrew.